preaching of God's Word is in Titus 2, particularly at verse 13. It's for the sake of some context, once more here, verses 11 to 15 of Titus 2. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. It's particularly there at verse 13 that is bound up with all that surrounds. We give our attention looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. We're mindful in the Lord's providence that we've seen the turning of one year to another. And it's natural in such moments for us who are time-bound creatures to take into consideration the year that's passed and the year that is before us. And yet, it is a common error to make much of the temporal things that we see looming large. Think of this year. We have an election year ahead of us. And you already know All that's going to be coming down to us. Some of us have medical issues and we wonder, will they turn this way or that way or will they stagnate and stay the same? Some have young children that are growing. Others, children who are on the cusp of leaving the home. Marriages are in various states and the question arises, what will come to pass? There's the issues in the Middle East and in the Far East and in our own nation all of which call for our attention, so we think. We are often puppets of the world and ready to make much of what is actually little in the economy of God's world. When you look at the text before us, we have a single item focusing our thoughts. All of what was before Paul and Titus, all of their circumstances, they must soundly live as we see in the reading of this chapter. But none of those things, as a servant having master, as a husband having a wife, as parents having children, as older people as they're coming to the end of their life, as younger people who are trying to figure out their place in this world, none of those things make up that to which all Christians were to be looking. There is a looking that is to characterize all Christians in all states, in all circumstances, and at all time. And it is this which is to then govern all of our actions. Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's certainly a place for annual resolutions and goals. And this is often made an error in this life, not only because they may resolve to do too much, but because they often make the resolution 
with uh, too little of a consideration. Here in the text before us, we have the happy view and expectation of the Christian. The Christian is one who is not tossed about by the waves of circumstance, however difficult. They are not those who are tossed about by the temporal trials, however severe and acute, because they have their soul fixed upon what they expect. And they don't expect much in this world. They don't expect great things in this life. They don't expect great advances for their own person in this world. But they do expect something far greater because they live in light of the expectation of their Savior. And brethren, with all that may be before you in this world this day, certainly this year, and if the Lord should give you life, the decades, and so on before you, you will be tempted as you and I have been tempted and far too often given in in sin to live with expectations of this world. So politics will play big in this. If we get this person, then we'll have this better life. Jobs will play big in this. If I get that job, then I'll have this better life. Spouses may play big in this. If they would change or I would change, then this would come to pass. If I could get a child, if I could have this come to pass, then my soul would be stable, settled, and then I could get on with holy living. You see, if the world wasn't in such a mess, if my family wasn't in such a mess, if my health wasn't in such a mess, if circumstances weren't what they were, then I could give my soul because then I would have stability to focus on the main thing. But I need to get these secondary things sorted first, then I'll get on with the main thing. Brethren, all of that is a massive deception. First off, never will the things of this life stabilize. They're always shifting. So as soon as something gets good, something else gets bad. So as soon as health gets well in your life, someone you love will have an ill bill of health. So as soon as finances come, they take wings to themselves and fly away. The Scriptures tell us of these things. Solomon, who was perhaps the most privileged the history of the world has ever known in outward things, was able to conclude vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And yet you'll notice in this chapter alone, there are specific, concrete things that the Christian in his circumstances is to focus on. Think about the different categories. Verse 4, that older women are to teach young women to be what? Sober. Think of that for a moment. If every woman who is of the category of an older woman would teach younger women to be sober. That's my calling. What's my calling? What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to teach younger women to be sober. You're supposed to teach younger women, younger women to be good, to be discreet, to be chaste, obedient to their own husbands, and so on. Young men are to be exhorted to be sober-minded. Well, don't they need this and that, sports and that, and these activities and these experiences? Well, they may benefit from those, but they're to be taught to be sober-minded. And all of these categories, servants, obedient to their own masters, and so on. And then it comes to the general, which is true of everyone, every Christian, whatever their circumstances, that they are to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
in this present world, the world that now is, the world that now is in political disarray, the world that now is at war or the cusp of war, the world that now is entertaining all manner of diseases and abuses, the world that now is in your own home, in this present world, as it now is, you're to be characterized by such a life as others would say, there is one who is sober. There's one who is righteous. There's one who is godly. Just for a moment, ask, is that what others see in me? Am I such a one who with great stability am characterized by sobriety, by godliness, by righteousness? Well, there's much that goes into this, but the text gives us the way to such stability. First, God's grace. We'll touch on that. But particularly our text, the fixation of our expectation upon the blessed hope that comes at Christ's return. For any who have been involved in target shooting or hunting, they realize the vast importance of ensuring that their gaze is fixed upon not only the sights, actually not the sights, but the target, fixing on that. And everything else can be brought into alignment with the target. Well, here's the target. It's not this world. It's not political change. It's not political improvement. It's not health improving. It's not circumstances changing. It has its fixation upon the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this year, as you see the world lose its mind with whatever happens politically, as you see Christians lose their mind and their sobriety and their self-denial when circumstances shift for the worse, when you see people all of a sudden glimmer with joy over temporal victories and they live by the circumstances of this life, you remember that that's not Christian. It's Christian to live by the hope that the Christian has. The glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Four things for us this morning as we consider this looking, this expectation, for so the word looking means. It comes from a word meaning to take or receive, to receive to oneself. And thus, when it's something off in the distance, the receiving of it is by way of expectation. And so we look firstly at a renewed expectation. Secondly, a holy expectation. Thirdly, a consuming expectation. And fourthly, a glorious expectation. So firstly then, a renewed expectation. All the world has something it expects. An engaged man right now, in this world, as godless as they are, expects the day of their marriage, their wedding. A pregnant woman, however godless they are, expects the day of their child's deliverance. Those who are imprisoned and have a date set for their liberation expect it. Some of us will expect a meal. All of these things are natural, normal, and so on. But then you look beyond those phenomenon which are common to us all, and you look at other things which we expect to give us hope. I'm going to get my life in order. I'm going to get fit, healthy. I'm going to eat a better diet. All of which may be needed, in fact. But this, we think, 
is what will bring about an expected improvement to our soul. Now, it may need that we need to get some discipline into our lives as a spiritual exercise. But you see, the world subtly shifts things and makes the temporal the grand expectation. If you could have a body like that, if you could have a finance like that, if you could have a job like that, then we think, I'll receive the great joy that I'm hoping for. Well, notice the renewed expectation that the Christian has. It's such an expectation as is the consequence of God's grace. So this, of course, is in the midst of Paul having stated, verse 11, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. This is what's governing the whole of this passage. This is what's governing, by the way, all of the exhortations that precede it. Why should the Christian live with such sobriety, such self-denial, such uh, diligence? It's because God's grace has appeared and brought salvation. But it's also that which is governing our text particularly. And it reminds us that the expectation of what's to come when Christ returns is an expectation we have only by God's grace. Have you ever heard the deceptive words spoken at an unbeliever's funeral? Well, at least their suffering's over. At least they're in a better place. Brethren, there's no such comfort to the unbeliever. There's no such peace to the one who dies in their sins. However much revered and respected of men, if they die in their sins, however ravaged their body was by the agonies of most miserable pain, they have entered a place that is immeasurably worse. And when the last day comes, it will not be a day of deliverance for all men. It will be a day of deliverance for those who have had salvation by God's grace. And so this expectation we have in looking forward to the return of Christ is an expectation that is ours only because of that simple word, grace. In other words, it's not because of you and your works. It's not because of young men being sober-minded. It's not because of aged women teaching others that their behavior is holy and they're not false accusers. It's not because of servants who are obedient to their own masters and they don't answer again when they're corrected or instructed. Those are the fruits and the evidence of this grace. It's this grace which gives us the expectation. And if you take grace out, the glorious appearing of God will be the undoing of the one who has no grace. Apart from God's grace, we have no expectation but judgment, damnation. And so, brethren, as we take up the consideration of this expectation, always remember that that which we rightly, longingly look forward to and anticipate receiving with great joy is ours because God has been gracious, freely bestowing it upon us according to His mercy alone. It's an expectation renewed because it's founded not on our work, but on Christ's. Verse 14, our Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us, purchase us back from all iniquity. There we were enslaved by our own lusts and actions and we were enslaved unto damnation. You can picture it as a prison 
And there we stand. And Christ comes and says, I want to redeem that one. And then the question comes, what are you willing to pay? And He says, I'll give Myself. He gives Himself for us bearing what we deserve that we might enjoy what He deserves. The glory that comes at the last day. Think of this. Christ tells us that we are His brethren. That we are, as His Word says, heirs together, yea, co-heirs with Christ Jesus. He purchases us by His death in our place that we then not only are forgiven, but may look to the end of the world when Christ returns and expect that glory to be given to us. It's a renewed expectation. But secondly, it is a holy expectation. In other words, we can say it this way, the looking, the expecting, flows from the lesson of verse 12. What's the lesson? Well, the grace of God appeared and it does something. It teaches us. What does it teach? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God that saves, saves not only from the guilt and condemnation due unto us for our sin, but it saves us from the power of sin as well. And it changes us. The world loves wit and the winning word. It loves to have the last word and to shove someone in their place and to make everyone look stupid and to call out all of the faults of others. It's hard to level up with the Scriptures because the Scriptures don't have the same virtues as the world does. What we find rather is here in simplicity, Paul says, here's the lesson of grace. Here's the fruit of grace. A sober, righteous, and godly life in this present world. Not in an imagined world that we hope will come to pass if this lines up or that changes, but in the present world with all of its brokenness, in the present world with all of its injustice, in the present world with all of its sin, in the present world with your husband, with your wife, with your children, those concrete realities, this present world, God's grace teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Think of that for a moment. Because it's our common temptation to think, if my circumstances would change, then my speech would change. If my circumstances would change, then I would get diligent in communing with God. If my circumstances would change, then I would be a patient person. If my circumstances would change, then I would be earnest about evangelizing. If my circumstances would change, then I would be diligent in prayer. You see, your reasoning, and I've often reasoned, according to the world's deception. The grace of God doesn't teach us how to live in an imagined world or in an idealized world. The grace of God teaches us how to live in the present world in all of its ugliness, in all of its brokenness, in all of its horror. Even at its worst, God's grace is able to cause us to live in this manner. This grace, you see, that's given to us 
delivers us unto real holiness. Not lip service, not talk, not agreement with books, not book reviews, not recommendations, not any of that. But it changes us that we would live truly and really as holy people in this present age. So for a moment, think of this and how contrary this is to the world's message. The world has a message that says, if my platform gets accepted, then the people can be happy. If these hungry people get fed, then they can be happy. If this oppressed people get liberated, then they can be happy. If this spouse in a difficult marriage would only have their other spouse corrected, then they could live in a happy way. Well, all of that's natural. We get it. We understand what it is to have a burden removed, and now we feel a breath of fresh air, and we can have a smile on our face. But brethren, we aren't talking about natural things. We're talking about supernatural things. God's grace is able to meet the person in their misery so that they lovingly and delightfully live in a sober, righteous, and godly way. And such grace as fortifies and changes our souls by the riches of Christ Jesus then creates longing for the reality in perfection because what comes at the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? It's heaven, which is holy, which yes, has the undoing of all burdens, and yes, it has the wiping away of all tears, but preeminently, heaven is heaven because the holy God of heaven and earth manifests Himself with such perfection, and His people are so perfectly transformed that they are now holy. So here's the wonder. Heaven begins by God's grace even now in the life of every true believer. And all of this is the consequence of God's grace. As we've already seen, God's grace transforms us. It teaches us. And it's it's in accordance with Christ Himself who gave Himself to redeem us, verse 14, and purify us to be a special, a peculiar people Zealous of good works. Notice that word peculiar. We use that word today as something that stands out as off, right? Well, that's peculiar. The Scriptures use it in a way that just means special, unique. Now, what is unique about God's people? Well, they're loved of God. They're saved by God. But the thing that is in context before us is that they are purified in the present age to live differently than the world does. They're purified to be zealous of what? Of good works. What are good works? Well, those who have studied the Scriptures should know, and certainly if we're students of the confession, we should have forms of words for us. Good works are only those which are commanded of God. Good works aren't what you know, granddaddy taught us and what the politics tell us and what this party tells us and what circumstances would say and what the temperature and sort of feeling of the culture is. Good works are those commanded of God. It's God's law. 
and how contrary God's law is to this present world. And it's not just in the generalities, but even as the Scriptures regularly uh, uh, convey, it touches the very inward parts of our souls so that the law is spiritual. And so we see this in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, Thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, and eventually if you just say, Thou fool, you're guilty of damnation. Think of that for a moment. What's happening is God is purifying a people who resent and stay away from and mortify the tendency to use harsh words. That's a peculiar people. It's not peculiar to lambast people. It's not peculiar to rub people's faces in filth. It's not peculiar to stand out as a master of put-downs. That is absolutely natural, common, a dime a dozen. What is strange and peculiar is a people who speak words that edify and minister grace to the hearer. That's peculiar. What's peculiar is a people who think of others as greater than themselves. That's peculiar. What's peculiar is a people who are willing to love God whatever the circumstances and deny themselves taking up their crosses and following Him. That's peculiar. What's peculiar is a people who put their own faces in the dirt that they may wash the feet of those who may be worse than they because they've learned the lesson of how evil they are in themselves and how undeserving they are of God's grace. That's peculiar. That's holiness, which comes by God's grace and through Jesus Christ. When this is realized in our souls, it creates in us a longing for the perfection of holiness which comes at the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And brethren, here's the great news. That's precisely what's coming to our experience. The day is coming. The glorious day is coming when the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ shall indeed appear. Practical holiness cultivates holy longing for Christ, because you see this connection, it's quite simple. It's Christ who gave himself that we would be redeemed and purified. It's Christ who sustains us, and it's Christ who's preparing a place for us, and so we're longing for Christ. So, this holy expectation is a holy expectation that is fixated upon Christ. Notice what it's not fixated upon, what it's not motivated by. Anything temporal. None of that is what motivates the Christian. It's not that it doesn't encourage and strengthen and so on or give some comfort, but that's not the grand motive. The grand motive is God's grace, Jesus Christ, heaven to come. And brethren, what you start to see is the expecting that the present generation of professed Christians have is much more temporal. It's much more about this present day. It's much more about what can we do to make sure that taxes lessen and finances increase? What can we do to make sure these temporal things are corrected and so on? Now, all of that has a place, but brethren, it is out of proportion to the overwhelming centrality 
of the world to come. And in fact, we can say that those temporal things will never come to pass until Christians embrace this otherworldly expectation. Thirdly, it is a consuming expectation. Notice the form of the word looking. It doesn't say that they looked or that they will look, but that they are looking. They are expecting. It consumes them. It dominates them. This is what they are doing. So if I call you up tomorrow and say, you know, what are you doing? And depending on the time of day, it may be that you're sitting down for a meal. It may be that you're working. It may be that you're enjoying time with family. All of those are states of experience. Well, the constant state of the experience of the Christian is one of looking, expecting, longing for heaven. This is what sustains Christians in the worst of times. You hear the Christians who suffered martyrdom and where they had opportunity to record their words and they testify of things of all that's going to come upon them and threats that are given to their bodies and they say, listen, I know not what will come in the moment, but I know this, I'm not expecting much in this life because I'm expecting the heaven to come. I'm not expecting royalty and blessings and riches in this life. That's not what I'm expecting. That's not where my longing is because I am consumed with a dominating expectation of heaven. It consumes and dominates our expectations, this glorious appearing of Christ. In other words, we can say it this way, less and less the Christian is discouraged by temporal troubles. Less and less they're alarmed by all of the news media. Less and less they're troubled by the circumstances of health and wealth and other such things. They have lawful interest in those things, but they're not consumed by them. They aren't made anxious by them. The doctor comes in and says, you know, you've only got a few weeks to live. They don't sit there unmoved and say, oh, that's nothing to me. But they've learned that their expectation included death, but looked beyond death. When it is that wars come up and rumors of wars come up and the media plays us like puppets and so on, the Christian doesn't say, oh no, all hope is lost. The world says, look at this. This has to be your focus, Christian. The Christian says, listen, my Master said, wars and rumors of wars are going to dominate this life. I'm not moved by that. If I was moved by that, then that tells me that I don't know my Lord. My Lord has foretold me of these things. And as all of these talking heads start to play us in these ways, we need to step back and say, who is my Master? And where is my consuming focus? Because far too many professed Christians are finding this out right now. That their expectation and their consuming expectation is this world, this time, this generation. But the Christian is one who is expecting the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That pattern has already been established in verse 10. The doctrine of God our Savior. And here we see Him specifically named the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's the one I expect. That's the one I long for. 
Revolutions may come. The empire of America may be turned over and broken and shattered. The Christian says in the end, big deal. Nothing has shifted in my expectation. Nothing has changed for where my hope is settled. The Christian loses his job unjustly. The Christian is forced to this or that wrongly. And though the Christian feels the sting, yet the sting is more than conquered by this remembrance. I'm not consumed about this life. I'm consumed about the coming life. And when that changes, when that shifts, when that takes a blow, then I'll tremble. But until that, I will not be moved. And I will give myself with devotion to the Lord. Remember when Daniel finds out the consequence of praying to any other but the great image and so on or the name of the king. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find out the great danger that they were in if they would not bow down to the image that the king had made. They meet it with sobriety, with righteousness, and godliness. Why? Because though they were privileged men and had much to lose temporally and physically, their expectation wasn't in this life. The apostles, much later than Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, they will be imprisoned and threatened with scourging and so on and will be told, don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. And they're not moved by it. Why? Because their expectation is the life to come. Young girls in the early church are stripped naked before a spectatorship calling for their blood, cheering when they see the animals uncaged in the various assemblies of wicked games. And yet they aren't moved. Why? Because they've expected that day to come. And yet they had a greater expectation of the day that is coming, Jesus Christ. It consumes and dominates our expectations so that the whole of this world may be held with an open hand, but the world to come is held with clenched hands. That's wherein our hope is found. It consumes and dominates our focus on what is the Christian focused. He's focused on Christ and His glorious appearing. He's consumed with His Savior who gave Himself for Him. He's delighted and entranced by the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This brings us fourthly to our glorious expectation. Preeminently, the expectation is Christ and His glory that we so lovingly expect. The Christian is characterized as receiving a crown and casting it before the feet of Christ. It's not as, in some ways, a fictitious show, like, well, I know it's proper that I shouldn't be receiving anything, and it's civilly appropriate that right now I rather give higher honor to this one who is greater than I am, but really I would rather wear the crown. Christian realizes that every crowned glory given to him 
is due exclusively and entirely to Christ. And what's more, he delights in seeing Christ glorified. To some extent, mothers and fathers can realize this as they think about their own children and their delight that they find, that sweetness when they see their children receive good things. Perhaps their son has been working hard and he gets acknowledged and has a promotion and it brings a mother a warmth of heart and a delight to see her son honored in that way. Perhaps a wife sees a husband honored as well and she finds delight in that. And there's nothing in some sense particularly given to her, but her heart is encouraged because the one she loves is receiving honor. Well, the same is true for every Christian the single thing that the Christian desires above all else is that Christ would be glorified and honored. In fact, Christians have known to pray, been known to pray and feel this sincerely. I would be content to be nothing, never to be thought of, never to have my name mentioned if Christ were given more glory. Remember the story of James Durham and Alexander Gray uh, Andrew Gray going to church, preaching in the same building, though divided in Glasgow. And Andrew Gray sees many more coming to his portion. And he says to James Durham, you know, oh, that they knew better and would hear you preach. And Durham says, I'm content to be something or nothing that Christ may be all. That should characterize us all. I am content to be something or nothing so long as whatever I am or am not, Christ would be all. And here's the great delight of the Christian. That on the last day, his or her beloved Savior will be crowned with glory openly, publicly, before all. And yet, what's greatly wondrous in this is that this is the blessed hope, the expectation that we're looking forward to because we will share in that glory. Remember what Christ said, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you that you may be with me where I am. He's preparing a place. He'll come again to receive us to Himself. And so the Christian has this compound expectation. Preeminently, the Christian's beloved will be honored. But embedded in that, is the wonder that this one who will receive honor will bestow honor. Such honor that the world could never match. The world could never come close to. And Christ will give honor to His beloved bride. Notice the simplicity of the language, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who is to appear on the last day in glory is the one who is our Savior, who will come for us. He's coming to remove us from the filth of sin and misery, to perfect us that that which we've struggled against and sought to mortify day by day will be put to death entirely and eliminated, and perfect us in glory that we may enjoy Him forever. This is the Christian's glorious expectation. Now for a moment, brethren, if we've caught even a hint of this, put this expectation 
against anything that can be found in this world. And ask yourself which is better. And paint the world in the most idealized way. And you'll find that there is an infinite distance between the glory and the goodness that is to be ours when Christ returns to what the world says will be great. What our flesh craves is beneath what God gives. And so, brethren, if you need encouragement to live in a holy way, you look to the wrong place if you look to the switching of your circumstances. It doesn't mean that God and providence does not or will not hear your prayers for this or that to change. But what it does mean is that your present living unto God is not to be changed by the change of your circumstances. You are expected in the worst of circumstances, in the most trying of times, to live in the way the Scriptures hold forth because the foundation that is stable has already been laid and given to you. God's grace has come to you. He's saved you. He's given you Christ. And He's given you the hope that however long endures this season of trial, there is the release to come in glory when Christ returns. And so, brethren, if you need encouragement unto holiness, here it is. It's nothing in this world. It's not a change in your job, your politics. It's not a change in your nation. It's not a change in your finances, your health. It's not a change in any of these things. If you would live holy, and if that's not your focus, there's a problem. If you would live holy in this life, you have everything afforded to you that would bring you to such a life. The encouragement is found exclusively in Christ, both what He's done and what He will do on the last day. On the other side, you can look at the unconverted and the worldlings' hope and consider how vain their encouragements are. They get a new job and they say, now things are going to improve. They get the ability to go on vacation. Now things are going to be better. Their health improves. And now things are going to get stable. And yet in the end, all of that's issuing toward death. Oh, this party gets elected. Now the world's going to be better. Oh, this war is settled. Now the world's going to be better. Oh, this thing is fixed. Now the world's going to be better. Well, temporally, we don't mean to deny there may be subtle improvements or subtle losses. But the unconverted and the worldling's hope is a vanity that will never stabilize, is never secure, and will never remain. How vain it is to live by the world. How foolish it is to live by the world. How foolish to be consumed by the world and its idiocy. How foolish to be consumed with all of the reports and all of the things that the media throws at us and to say this is what should dominate your life. It is utter vanity. The Christian is called to look above all of this turmoil to the simple and secure viewing of Christ who reigns over all and will come again for His beloved people. Brethren, as you have the majority of the year ahead of you, if the Lord should give you life, you have a year ahead of you that will either be dominated by your living according to the circumstances of this world, which will then excuse you in your mind from living soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, 
or you have a life ahead of you dominated by Christ, what He's done and what He will do, which will stabilize and center your soul so that you may live as He gives you life, a year's worth of this world to His glory. Brethren, it's obvious what it should be that will dominate us. Yet we stand in need that the Lord would give us grace. And so we ought to pray for ourselves and one another that He would cause us to rise above the temporalities of this present age, which are no excuse unto ungodliness, which are no excuse unto worldliness, that we would live with our, as Paul says elsewhere, our minds set above upon things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When it is Christ we expect, His glory we expect, His deliverance we expect, then our lives in this present world will reflect the same in a holy and happy and godly frame to His glory. Would you stand with me for prayer?